Hi everyone, I'm Rosemarie Miller here with Kelly Phillips Herb, a senior writer here at Forbes, here to give us some end of the year tax tips. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Kelly, how can individuals strategically utilize retirement and related accounts to defer income and contribute to their nest egg before the approaching year end? So you have the opportunity to put money away all year long, um, but there are limits on how much you can give. And we actually have those outlined in our, um, our year-end uh, tax article that's coming up, but also you can find it anywhere on Forbes or IRS. The, 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 it depends on the kind of account that you have, but typically you're looking at about 22,000 for a retirement account. That's like a qualified plan, like you think of as a 401k. I'm at about 6,000 for an IRA. Um, and if, at the end of the year, you haven't hit those limits, uh, the IRS says, right? So if you're looking and you have a little bit of money, maybe you got a bonus or you have a little bit of money you weren't counting on, you can actually put that money in one of these tax deferred accounts. And what that does is it also defers the tax, depending on the kind of account. Um, I will say there's Roths are treated differently than uh, traditional accounts, but for the most part, I think, um, you know, with traditional accounts is what a lot of people think of a traditional IRA. When you put the money in, it uh, doesn't get taxed when you make the contribution. It gets taxed later when you take it out. And of course the goal is that you'll, you're making more money now than you will when you're in retirement. So your tax bracket will be a little lower later. So you have the, the benefit of the deferral now, and then hopefully the benefit of a lower tax bracket later. And you can keep making contributions up at the end of the year, except when it comes to IRAs, you even have an extra wiggle room, which is that you can literally make it uh, that kind of With respect to 401ks, your deadline is a hard deadline at the end of the year. But if you're a super procrastinator and you have an IRA, you have a little more wiggle room because those contributions can be made all the way up to tax day, which is April 15, and it will still count for the prior year. Mm -hmm. Well, Kelly, let's talk about charitable contributions. So in what ways can making charitable contributions, including rollovers and donations to donor advised funds, serve as a means to reduce income while simultaneously contributing to a charitable cause? So there's a lot of ways that you can give to charity, which is pretty pretty awesome, that have some um, great tax benefits. Uh, the one way that most of us think about is just writing a check or um, you know making your credit card donation. Um, as long as you make those by year end, you are el eligible, uh, assuming that you itemize, you're eligible to deduct those on your taxes for 2023. Um, and a lot of times people wonder, does the check have to clear? Have you, do you have to have paid off the credit card? No, you just have to have made the, uh, the gift by the year end, which is um, a pretty gr a good idea, especially if it's end of the year and you're kind of scrambling, right? Um, there's other ways that you can can give, and uh, you mentioned uh, donor-advised uh, gifts. And so what's really interesting about donor-advised gifts or donor-advised funds is that they are sponsored by a charity, but it is usually in a financial institution. So for example, Fidelity might have a donor-advised fund. And so what a donor-advised fund does is it allows you to make a contribution today, even if you're not really sure where you want the money to go. So let's say you know you wanna spend $10,000, you wanna make a $10,000 gift to charity, but you're not really sure where, you can put it in this fund, you get the immediate tax deduction now, and then later you can tell Fidelity, you know what, I really feel strongly about sending this money to Red Cross or, or the charity of your choice. Um, you can't make them do it, 
but your suggestion, and, and it typically as long as it's a qualified charity, they'll then make that contribution. And so you get the benefit of having made the donation to the fund early by year end, um, but you might can take your time a little bit to figure out, you know, how, how where do I want this money to go? How do I want to benefit charity? So that's a really good way. Donor advice funds, it's worth noting, do tend to be at a little bit of a higher price point, right? So you could write a check to charity for any amount, $5, um, but donor advice funds are gonna have minimums. So they are, a, you know, a little more strategic, um, high net worth planning, but still a really good option. Uh, another thing that you can do is donate appreciated assets. Um, I think sometimes people get a little freaked out when they hear like appreciated assets because it sounds like it has to be like super wealthy, but not necessarily. Um, I happened to buy Amazon back in the day before it became, well, it was Amazon then, but now it's Amazon, right? So it's right. appreciated. <laughs> um, I've never sold it. It's sitting in my, it's sitting in my brokerage account. Um, if I were to sell it, I would pay capital gains on it, and then I could write a check to charity for the difference, which would be a smaller check. But if I just transferred that money over to the charity directly, so if I donated the appreciated asset, I don't pay the capital gains, and I get the benefit of the entire value of the deduction. So it's a win for me, and it's a win for charity. So um, those are two ways that are really good. And then the third one that's worth mentioning is that if you're a little older, um, you can make what's called a QCD, which is a Qualified Charitable Distribution, and that is a rollover directly from your retirement accounts. We mentioned those earlier, but when you get older, you're required to start taking that money out. And uh, at age 73, it's called a required minimum distribution, and if you don't take a certain amount of money out, the IRS dings you. Um, much like with the appreciated assets, if you take the money out, it becomes taxable. If you then write a check to charity, you're giving them the after-tax value of that gift. But you can use this very specific rule to donate up to $100,000 directly from your retirement account to the charity. It's treated like a rollover if you've ever done a, uh, a regular rollover. And the benefit is you get the full value of the deduction. It can count as your RMD, so you check those boxes, and the charity gets the full value of that um, gift. The best thing about QCDs that I don't think gets talked about enough is I mentioned um, earlier that you had to itemize to take charitable gifts uh, to mm -hmm. get the deduction. QCDs are never taken into income, so there's no offsetting deduction. It's like it sort of never happened from a tax perspective. You're literally moving money, it ticks all the boxes, but you don't get taxed on it and you don't get a deduction for it. It's just considered tax-free. That's a really terrific uh, thing to have happen, but it also means that you don't have to meet any sort of itemization uh, threshold, which sometimes can be difficult for folks in a post-2017 uh, tax reform world. Um, they're, they're sometimes difficult for some taxpayers to kind of hit those thresholds. Well, Kelly, uh, could you discuss the benefits of harvesting losses and balancing out income, particularly in a scenario where there have been significant stock gains throughout the year? Right. So it's funny when you talk about harvesting losses, it sounds really dramatic. Um, but basically what it is, is it's just a way of balancing out your portfolio. So let's say you had a lot of winners over the year. Um, and so you're looking at you, maybe you've actually sold some winners. Uh, things were going well for you, uh, for you and you, you went ahead and realized those capital gains. Those are going to be taxable. Uh, tax, sorry. Those are going to be taxable. But if you have losers in your too, if you sell them and you have losses, those realized losses can offset the realized gains. 
the important part is they actually have to make the sales because what's inside your account, sort of like what I was talking about with Amazon before, if something is appreciated, that in itself isn't a taxable event. It's not taxable typically until you sell it or give it away. Um, in this instance, if you've sold throughout the year and you've racked up some realize, it's good to offset it with some losses. And the flip side is also true. If you, you know, it's a rough tax year or sorry, a rough accounting you're looking at your portfolio and you had a lot of losses, maybe it's time to, you know, balance those out with selling a few winners. Um, while you can carry some losses forward, it's always a good idea to try to reach some balance. Mm -hmm. And so could you explain some of the advantages of participating in an intrafamily loan, referring to the grandma's story, which we yeah. also have a video about that. You all should watch it. Uh, and how it enables individuals to reduce interest rates while maintaining associated tax breaks. A lot of folks will tell you that you shouldn't borrow money from family, but this is actually one instance where you can actually have tax advantages as well as economic advantages from borrowing from family. Why? Interest rates have been cut slightly, as many of us know. Some folks now have high credit card bills, um, student loan payments have you know, kicked back in and some of those are at higher rates than maybe seems affordable for, for uh, students who just graduate. Um, and, you know, you might have people who are looking to buy a home or to refinance a home and interest rates are just maybe a little too high for them to do that right now. Uh, but if you have a relative who has some liquid assets, you know, maybe they have, uh, you know, a little nest egg sitting over in, in a bank somewhere, then they're willing to give you a loan, um, there's a special kind of intrafamily loan where the IRS says, as long as you hit certain minimums with the interest rates, then we're going to consider this a bona fide loan. So it has to, you have to hit what's called the AFR. It's a very specific number um, that the IRS puts out, every, well, Treasury puts out every single month. But as long as you hit those numbers, the IRS says, okay, we're going to consider this a real loan. Now, some sometimes the spread between what that number is and what you're paying can be significant. If you're paying 30% on a credit card and the AFR is 5%, you know, big, big difference. Same thing with the mortgage. If you're looking at a mortgage rate of eight or nine and you can pay 5% on the AFR, it's a terrific opportunity for you. And it feels, because it tends to be more informal, right? If you're borrowing from your parents, let's say, it feels like it wouldn't be like a bona fide loan for purposes of IRS, but it is. And the damage to that on the part on the part of the borrower is that um, you can still keep the same tax treatment that the loan would have had from a bank, even if it's from mom and dad. So a good example, again, with a home, if I borrow from my parents a, a proper mortgage, like we might write a promissory note, they might even record it in the county where I live. Um, if I do that, I can still claim a mortgage interest deduction for the interest that I'm paying to mom and dad, even though I might be getting a more favorable rate from that bank <laughs> than I would say my local bank. Um, and it's a really nice way to preserve uh, those tax advantages while paying less money. On the flip side, the person who's loaned you the money does have to bring that money into income as interest, but you know it's probably more more or less the same amount that they would have been uh, earning had they kept that money in like a CD. So there's really no difference to them. Um, this works really well actually for middle class taxpayers. It works even better um, for high income years because there's a lot of associated 
estate tax um, advantages that, that can also come into play um, that really aren't part of the year-end discussion. But it is a way, if you have a lot of money or parents have a lot of money, you know, it might be a discussion you want to have with your advisors. But if you're just looking to have to help paying off some student loans and you need, um, you know, just a lash borrowed at a better rate than you would get at a bank, uh, family is actually a really good place to start. It is worth noting that you want to make sure that you have a really good relationship <laughs> with your family um, before you either make that ask or say yes, um, because you do want to still treat it like it's a business deal. And, you know, if, if there's a situation where you're not really communicating with your parents or, uh, you know, maybe you don't trust your uncle, um, probably not the best thing to borrow or lend uh, money. Kelly, I don't know why, but I feel like you're letting me in on like top secrets or something like, ooh, I know, everybody right? does not I know this. Because <laughs> I, I think that's one that people don't talk about. It. We always think additional lending. But, you know, mm. there are, especially now, there are people who retired folks, for example, that have money that they might be able to lend to their favorite grandchild. Mm. Wow. So let's talk about electric vehicles. How do investments in electric vehicles and green home initiatives offer tax benefits at both the state and federal levels? And what considerations should be made regarding the new upfront payment scheme for electric vehicles? So EVs are really interesting because uh, or electric vehicles, EVs, are really interesting mm -hmm. because there's a lot of tax incentives uh, to get folks to buy them. And actually, in some cases, there are more um, opportunities to buy them than actual cars to buy. Um, but one of the things that the feds have done, in particular, and states are now following suit, is that they're offering you a tax credit to buy green. So you can earn up to $7,500 through credit, which is a whole lot, because uh, to make a question, a deduction is a deduction in your income. So it's like a dollar for dollar deduction in income. Credits are a dollar for dollar offset on the tax due. So that's a much bigger savings, right? Because that is, you kind of figure it out according to your tax bracket. So it can be a, a pretty, pretty significant savings. So you can get this credit of up to $7,500 for buying a new EV. Um, there are a lot of rules, far too many rules to talk about in this short span of time. Um, but a couple that you should be aware of is that um, they keep, well, the one that you should be most aware of is that they keep changing the rules. Um, there are actually requirements depending on when you buy the car um, that there must be a certain amount of the car produced in North America. There are certain kinds of efficiencies that you have to prove. So you want to do your homework. Um, and you also need to be aware of when you can claim the you can only claim the credit when the car is delivered. So if you go down to your lot today, uh, car lot today, and you can you know pick up the, the EV of your choice and they have it on the lot, then you could probably make that a year in tax move. However, if they tell you it's backordered and you're not going to be able to get it to 2025, um, then you're not going to be able to claim the credit until 2025. So you want to, when you're out there poking around, make sure you check that the time. So there's an additional incentive as of January 1st of next year, which allows you to get the credit on site at the dealer. So basically it acts like an advance or like a discount against the car payment. Um, and again, if you start looking at those numbers, $7,500 is a pretty hefty uh, credit or discount to be able to take at the dealer. Um, so if you want the credit now, you know, it's a year end move. If you want to wait and try to get it up front at the dealer, um, you know, go on January 1st. 
with respect to homes, there's a lot of different kinds of credits and many of them have been around for a while. It's exactly the kinds of things that you would think. Things like buying an efficient uh, central air conditioner, investing in solar, all of those kinds of things that we're sort of touting as good for the environment. They may also be good for your wallet um, because you can, depending on, again, most of them have to be installed uh, by the end of the year for you to get the credit. Um, but you know, if you're looking at a new heat pump, uh, you know, maybe that's your Christmas gift because you can offset that with a credit up to 30% um, to the cost of that uh, piece of equipment, which can be pretty significant. Now, depending on which kind of credit you qualify for, so it depends on the thing, like which thing you're getting, is it roofing tiles versus something else, um, there could be a limit, an annual limit, but in either case, there's no maximum credit. So most of the time you could keep, uh, for the, sorry, there's no maximum lifetime credit. So you can do this every year, right? So you can start looking now and maybe invest in the air conditioner this year and the heat pump next year. Mm -hmm. Well, Kelly, what steps, what, what steps, excuse me, should individuals take to assess their current financial situation before the year end? And how might this evaluation guide decisions such as catching up on estimated payments or making changes in the upcoming year? Right, so this is the point where I tell you that you should have been doing this all along, um, but it's also <laughs> the point where I tell where I tell taxpayers that I know that they haven't, and that's okay. Um, you know, there's no shame in it. Like again, ideally, you'd already have a good picture of your finances by now and have taken all the right steps. But literally, if you're looking at your year-end statement, you're like, "What happened this year? It's been a blur. I don't know." Um, you know, maybe take a few hours out of your day. Um, ideally, again, you'd meet with your tax professional, but if this is something you'd want to do on your own, there are tools available to help you do that. Um, look at, is my picture the same as it was last year? If it is, did I withhold the same amount this year as I did last year? And that should give you a pretty good indication of what your tax bill is going to be in April. If you got a big bump in salary, um, but didn't make any changes, maybe consider putting a little more money in um, via either an estimated payment or you can actually just ask your employer at the end of the year to increase your withholding just a little bit. Um, there are a lot of ways where you can measure, again, usually against last year's tax returns. Just look at your last year and uh, check the check that you've received. You know, usually it'll tell you how much you've had taken out year to date. But since it's the end of the year, it's going to be pretty close to what happened last year, right? Hopefully. Um, so mm -hmm. you can look at those numbers, see if they match, see if there's anything else you need to do. Um, if you find that you're going to owe a little more tax, you can either, as I mentioned, um, make an extra payment now, or you can do some of the things we've talked about, like make a charitable contribution, consider deferring extra income through a, a charitable, sorry, through a retirement contribution. There's lots of ways that you can uh, reduce your taxable income. Again, ideally you'd be doing it all during the year, but if you are sort of feeling the scramble at the end, um, there's lots of resources to help you. One of them I think I wanna mention for sure is that there is a withholding calculator on the IRS website. It's irs.gov um, and it can actually, it sort of walks you through and asks you some questions. You can figure out if you've been making the right withholdings. Um, I think most people are pretty confused by their uh, form W-4, what you would fill out when you uh, start your job. So this is a way for you to, you know, check against what the IRS thinks you're going to owe so that you are kind of keeping in line. Another way, I know uh, Bill Baldwin's a fan of, you can use tax software, just run a demo, see what you think is going to happen. 
um, you don't have to have perfect numbers, right? You can say, I think I made this amount this year, just run the numbers and see what it looks like. And if it's in keeping with what happened last year, again, you're probably okay. If it's significantly different, you'll want to make a change. So are there any specific deadlines or extensions for retirement and related accounts that individuals should be aware of as they approach tax day, allowing for last minute contributions? Right. So earlier I discussed uh, retirement contributions for retirement accounts like a 401k. Those are definitely year end. But again, if you are making a contribution to something like an IRA, you have until tax day, which is April 15, so a little more wiggle room. But if you are if you are looking to make that retirement contribution this year, you want to make sure that it's in by December 31st. Okay. And considering all the strategies you've mentioned, what key factors should individuals consider when deciding whether to catch up on estimated payments or implement changes in their financial plan for the new year? Again, I think when you start thinking about next year, you want to do exactly the same thing that I just said to do for the year end, right? Look at what you have, um, what you're expecting to come in and what happened last year and see if you think those things are going to be the same. If you know that there's something that's going to be significantly different in your life, you're going to want to plan accordingly. And while we always don't know what's going to happen, there's some things you can be pretty sure about, right? Like if you're getting married next year, um, you know, hopefully you know that. <laughs> hopefully you know that now. Um, having a baby, buying a house, moving, all of these things that can have an impact on your taxes, you probably know now if you're going to be doing that next year or that you're thinking, you know, seriously about doing those things and you can make some changes. Same thing with jobs. If you are getting a raise, if you are changing jobs, especially if you're shifting into maybe more than one job, if you're thinking about picking up a side hustle, um, those are things that would impact your next year's planning. And you want to start thinking about it now so that next year we don't have the same conversation about how to scramble at the end. Not that I'm downplaying <laughs> scrambling at the end. It can be advantageous. And I'm a procrastinator too. I get it. Um, but the more that you can plan ahead, the more likely it is that you can save. Kelly, this has been so helpful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Absolutely.